from the Theology of the Body Institute, this is the Ask Christopher West Podcast. Welcome, everyone. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our podcast. We're happy to be back with you. Mm -hmm. Since we're still kind of recovering from coronavirus lockdown around here, I actually have a question that came in during the the lockdown that I wanted to share with you. Yeah, please. A couple months ago, we were talking about having watched some different movies about Jesus' life and thoughts about them. And several... We were talking about... Jesus of Nazareth that we watched when we were right? kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ba, 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 ba. <laughs> right. <laughs> that one. Yes. Uh, so anyway, several of our listeners asked, oh, have you seen The Chosen, which is a, a series that's ongoing right now, still coming out about the life of Jesus, about the gospel stories. And at the time the question came in, we actually hadn't watched any of it, so I didn't share that question with you then. But we have indeed. Yes. We uh, we did a little bit of a binge watch with our kids, mm-hmm. and season one, season one. That's all that I think is right now available. Mm-hmm. And I I was really blessed by it. I know you were too. Yeah. And the kids were. And yeah. I, I said to the kids at one point, "I'm so glad you're getting this impression of Jesus because I've spent." Much of my adult life, as you know, Wendy, overcoming false images in my mind and in my heart of who Jesus is from (laughs) film strips and movies and things that I grew up watching in Catholic schools that just left a really bad Mm -hmm. taste in my mouth that Jesus was somehow not even really human, that because he was divine, he wasn't human. And, And this is the whole point of... Our faith. It's the whole point of the incarnation. It's the whole point of theology of the body, that it's embracing humanity. That's how his divinity is revealed, through the humanity, that our humanity has the capacity. We don't have to be inhuman to reveal the divine. Right. Jesus doesn't have to be some, some inhuman character to reveal the divine. It's through the humanity that his divinity is revealed. And I think this Chosen series really shows that beautifully. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's a creative, imaginative take on the stories. It fills in a whole lot of backstory that we have no way of knowing. And it's as someone has imagined it. So, for us, I think we watch it a little bit like, isn't this Interesting yeah. the way this person right. has conceived of this. And, and it is. It yeah, is. The, the backstories he comes up with, whoever is the creator of yeah. it, I find, uh, for the most part, I find compelling and I, I mean, you know where it's going. Like the, the miraculous catch of fish, you know where that's going, but the backstory he gives gets you excited to see where it's going. It right. makes It makes, even though you know the ending of that part of the story, it makes you excited to see it all come to fruition. There were a couple things that, you know, as a Catholic theologian, and, you know, maybe I'm nitpicking here and there, but but there was, um, yeah, definitely some Protestant theology coming through in some of it. It's written by a Protestant, like in the, um, in the scene with the woman at the well, which right. for the most part was beautiful and even brought me to tears. Yes. Uh, I really thought it was well done, but there was, there was one little bit in there where Jesus talks about true worship is not in the temple, and it's just about the heart, and you kind of got this idea of of the Protestant 
theology of what the church is, which is not surprising because it's written by a Protestant, but it's not the way we see things as, as Catholics. Mm-hmm. If that scene had been written by a Catholic who was well-versed in Catholic theology, it would have come up across more robustly. So I just I'm just saying that as a little qualifier, but I give this series a a nice B plus. Uh, I'd love to give it an A, but because of some of those reservations as a Catholic, I, I give it a, a nice B plus. Uh-huh. I think it's really good. Yeah, we've certainly, certainly really been enjoying watching it and laughing. I think to to watch something that features these characters from the scripture and they make you laugh. Yeah, Jesus makes you Jesus laugh. Makes I love you that laugh. about Jesus. Different apostles make you laugh. And that's just such a, a great bonding experience to be laughing together with these characters yeah, from the scripture. I agree. Yeah. So that's, we're, we're enjoying that. Yeah, anybody out there, if you are interested in checking this out, you should check it out. And mm-hmm. watch it with your kids, because it'll give them a, a good impression of, of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. So, shall we move on to another one? Yes. This is a question from an anonymous woman who says, Thank you, Wendy and Christopher, for helping to spread Theology of the Body to the world. These podcasts are often a breath of fresh air when I feel confused and discouraged. I'm so glad to hear that. Bless you, dear anonymous woman. Bless you. My question is about forgiveness. I live in a family with five adult kids and their many dysfunctional patterns of expressing emotion and dealing with conflict. Many of my family members, myself included, have a difficult time forgiving. I know as Catholics we're called to forgive the way Jesus forgave us, but I don't understand the difference between forgiveness and living in dysfunction. I feel that dysfunction has to be solved before I can say I forgive you and let things go. Mm, mm. But that leads to holding grudges and resentment. I don't know how to forgive while still addressing the dynamics and not becoming a doormat. Wow. Bless you, dear person out there. Uh, we, we just addressed a similar question on the, at the marriage summit. Mm-hmm. Something similar came through. So I'm... Some of my thoughts from that are fresh in mind, which I think are worth repeating here. But I, I do want to make this point that I forget who told me this. It might have been one of my cousins who, who said the term dysfunctional family is redundant because mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we're all broken. We, we bring brokenness right with us into our marriages. And so if, if function is to be the way God created us to be in the beginning, None of us are there. We're all dysfunctional in that sense. So, this is no surprise. The good news is there is grace available to us to work through our dysfunction, to learn how to love and forgive, and doesn't make it easy. Anybody who says forgiveness is easy, uh, I don't think is really going to the depths of what forgiveness means. Uh, the very word Forgiveness implies an injury, mm-hmm. and to forgive does not mean we sweep that injury uh, magically away as if I don't feel it anymore. In fact, and this is what I shared, we together shared at that marriage summit. Uh, by the way, the marriage summit that Damon Owens put on is is definitely worth checking out. Uh, we'll have that in the show notes, uh, a link to the marriage summit. Uh, so many beautiful couples were giving uh, presentations and yeah, it's just a really exciting things that everybody should know about. So anyway, I say that as an aside, but uh, this is the quote from the catechism that uh, our dear friend, Father Jim shared with me years ago. I know he shared it with you too. Oh, yeah, and, it's very rich. And 
a little, little warning. It's it's a little long, but you're good at kind of delivering it slowly so we can think about what it's yeah, telling us. Yeah, look this up in the catechism. It's I don't know the exact paragraph number in the catechism, but I can tell you this. It's in the section on the Our Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who mm-hmm. trespass against us. Which is that's the section. Exactly Fact. what this person is referencing yes. when she says I do we're called have to forgive. The catechism right here, handy okay. dandy. Okay. Let's see if I can find it quickly. Um, if I can't find it quickly, I can at least uh, tell you what it what it is. The catechism says it is not in our power not to feel or to forget an offense when someone hurts us it's not in our power not to feel or to forget this and this is so important for us to remember because we we tend to think well if i still remember you know it's forgive and forget is the expression right forgive and forget yeah. we don't have that power it's not in our power to forget an offense it's the wound is in us i'm not finding the exact paragraph here so i guess i'll just paraphrase it anyway it's not in our power not to feel or to forget an offense, but the heart that opens that injury to the Holy Spirit. That's the key line. The heart that, I believe the catechism says, offers that injury to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit transforms the hurt into compassion. That's a very powerful mm-hmm. I would even say miraculous experience. You and I know this well from our own mm-hmm. marital relationship where we've hurt one another. The reason we hurt one another is because we're hurt. We are wounded wounders. We get wounded and we're in pain. We don't know what to do with that pain, so we, we pass it along. And that cycle, the only way that cycle of being the wounded wounder can stop is if someone says, I'll take the punch and I won't punch back. Mm -hmm. So what do we do with that punch if we take a punch? Uh, Meaning, obviously, that we receive an injury from someone else. We offer that injury to the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit transforms the injury into compassion. Because I can have compassion because I'm feeling the pain that the person has dumped on me. That person is in pain. I'm feeling that person's pain. How much pain is that person in? At least to the extent that I'm in pain, that person's in pain. Mm. So the pain can become compassion. And then the memory, the catechism says, the memory is transformed into intercession. The pain, the memory of the pain can become a prayer for the person who hurt us. This is a miracle of, of grace as this happens in our lives. And it's, it's the only way out of the suffering. And forgiveness entails going right there. We don't have the power in ourselves to forgive. We have to offer the pain to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can come into the pain and transform the pain into prayer and into compassion. We know that very well, that the, that's not just some theological idea. But what, what, how would you put that in, in concrete terms, Wendy? What does that look like? What does it look like in our relationship? And what, yeah. what might it look like for, for this woman who's written? I'm thinking about this person who's asking the question as well, that, you know, when people use that expression, forgive and forget, 
I think what they're trying to get at, although as you said, it's impossible to fully forget, is that maybe to resist a temptation to constantly review someone's flaws and the ways they've hurt us over and over in our mind as some kind of way of maybe getting back at them by always keeping a firm grasp right in the forefront of our mind of what that person has done. Right. And this questioner talked about grudges. Grudges, right. That would be along those lines. And, you know, the Lord knows our hearts and minds. It's really good to take time in prayer and just to speak to Him honestly about what's been going on in our hearts and our feelings because of things that have happened. To offer those things, like for me, sometimes I need to kind of imagine myself sort of collecting, collecting it all up mm. as if it's in my hands, the painful situations and and lifting them up and saying like, here, mm. please do something with this. I, It's like I'm removing it from myself sort of, you know, in gesture in my prayer time, just to invite him into the, the real things in our hearts And then to realize that, yes, we are called to grow in in our ability to kind of get along healthily with people in our lives. And the distinction between forgiveness and just letting people treat us poorly has to do with recognizing that holding on to and nurturing the pain doesn't bring anyone closer to healthy relating. and learning to recognize the the dignity that we have when we've been injured repeatedly it can cause us to question our dignity but also the dignity of others and to to behave out of a sense of the dignity that we have in Christ is not i mean that sounds like a very simple answer and i don't want to you know oversimplify it but it is kind of a guiding principle that maybe if we are needing some counseling or needing to read some books on healthy relationships, all of that, if we can remember that great gift of the God-given dignity of every person being within what creates a healthy way of relating, and then recognizing that that call to forgive is that call to surrender the right to get someone back, Mm -hmm. you know? You Mm -hmm. hurt me, I have this kind of indignation and desire to just make you feel it. And that part isn't going to be productive toward a healthy relationship. I'm not a, I'm not a counselor, so I don't want to go yeah. too far in giving advice, but those are reflections from our experience. I, I know just as an example in our lives, the, the wounded wounder scenario, I came into our relationship more wounded than I ever realized I was from childhood experiences. Many of them had to do with an older brother who, whom I love dearly, but as older brothers often are, was uh, very belittling towards me uh, emotionally. And he had lots of favorite insults that were just rattled off just regularly. And whenever my own personality was coming out or my own uniqueness or my quirks or whatever, boom, there was a, an insult. There was some cut against me. And I had no idea what kind of an impact that had on my life mm-hmm. growing up. Uh, I knew I didn't like it so much, but you just kind of get used to it. You go on with life. And um, 
the pain that that had caused me that I had just buried in there, uh, then I in turn consciously and unconsciously dumped on you. Uh, it came out in all kinds of ways that were very, very painful to you. And you, by necessity and, and with the counsel of, of, of good spiritual direction, you, you learned first what it meant to offer that pain, to have compassion for me, first of all. You were, the pain you were feeling, you came to learn, was the pain I was in. And you learned how to offer that pain as a prayer for my own, for my healing. And that, that, that was effective prayer. Mm. It was real, that's real intercession. That's what intercession really mm. is. It's not just throwing up a Hail Mary for somebody, which is fine and good. I don't, I don't mean to undermine that at all, but real intercession takes us to much deeper levels than just throwing up a, a Hail Mary for somebody. It, we feel the pain that that other's in and it becomes an offering and it's effective in bringing about a transformation in that person's life. And you taught me that. And, and I then in turn learned how to look at my pain and, and begin offering that up for the people who have wounded me, uh, having compassion for those who have wounded me. So just as we can become wounded wounders and I get punched and then you punch forward, when somebody says, I'll take the punch and learn how to become your intercessor and learn how to forgive and redemptive suffering takes place, we also become, we, we pay it forward, not with more wounds, but, but there's a ripple effect of the redemptive power of mm -hmm. that which is very, very real. Forgiveness does not mean saying it's okay. It's not okay. If it were okay, there would be no need to ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness is much more something along the lines of what we're talking about here. And, and this is how we bring healing into our dysfunction. Uh, we're, again, dysfunctional family is redundant in a fallen world, but this power of grace is very real. And it can, can bring function into our dysfunction. Mm. We will be praying for our listeners as you, as you work on these things, because I know many of you relate to this question. That, yeah. that really the light that will come from your heart having worked on forgiving you know, will shine in your household and bring transformation to others simply by the release that comes from you know, opening those things up to the Lord and they're not just sort of trapped in the family relationship anymore. So, I, you know, we really pray that that will be a fruit. Can we pray for that dear person right now? Okay. Uh, do you have a prayer on your heart, love? Sure. Lord, we lift up our person who asked this question and uh, her family. Ask, Lord, that your light would shine in dark places and that there would be growth and progress toward treating one another with the dignity you've given, that their relationships would be in keeping with your heart for each person. And if it begins with just one, Lord, may it spread. We pray for your mercy, your forgiveness, your grace to flow uh, through these hearts. Amen. 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 I'll just add one more thing on this before we go to another question. Uh, it reminds me, or I'm reminded that I, I wrote a book where I, I share a lot of our own journey there, my personal journey, and how your becoming my intercessor has brought healing to me. 
And that book is called, uh, if I can remember it. Love is Patient. Yes, that one. Love is Patient, But I'm Not is the title of that one. And the subtitle is Confessions of a Recovering Perfectionist. We'll put a link to that book in the show notes if that is of interest. And I I never want to talk about my books just to as if I'm I'm trying to get people's money. I, I mean this sincerely. If you are in a situation where you want a copy of that book and you don't have the money, will you please let us know? Go, go to our the Ask Christopher West website and just let us know in the comment section there where you can submit a question. Say, I want to get that book. I don't have the money. And uh, we'll we'll send it to you for free. We'll We'll find donors to cover whatever costs we need to cover to get that out there. I never want want it to sound like I'm just plugging my books to get right. people's cash. I'm I'm plugging these books or I'm I'm talking about these books because I think they can really help people. Yes. I agree. I love your books. Thanks, lover. <laughs> Shall I share another yes, question? Yes, please. Okay. This is a question from Wes who says I Hey I, Wes. I want to know your thoughts on the traditional Latin mass. Do you believe it was necessary to change the mass in Vatican II? I believe so much of Theology of the Body aligns with the traditional Latin Mass. I'm drawn to it and the reverence of it. What do you think, and have you ever gone to the Latin Mass? Yeah, great question. Thank you, Wes. Uh, Yes, I have been to the Latin Mass. I found it very reverent, beautiful experience. It created a sense of awe and wonder. Uh, I also love going to Byzantine liturgies and liturgies of other Eastern rites, Mm Where, where it's the unfamiliar that, that kind of excites me and, and gets me a, a view of the liturgy. It's so easy because we're so familiar with the liturgy. There can be that disease of familiarity where, where it's just kind of ho-hum because you know everything by heart. And it just kind of becomes rote. It shouldn't, but it does. It's just human limitations. So that was especially what I loved about going to the Latin Mass. And that's why I also love the riches of the East. Do I do I think what was the question? Do I think? Well, there are a couple. Do you think it was necessary to change the mass in Vatican II? Right. Okay. Let me say a few things about that, uh, especially Vatican II. We have yet to see the renewal of the liturgy that the Second Vatican Council called for. Uh, we are only fifty plus years out from the council, fifty-five years, and historians tell us, and I think this is something important to keep in mind that. There's always about, after a council, after a major council, there's always about a, a hundred years of post-conciliar chaos. Mm. And we're only a little bit over halfway through that chaos. I was born in the late 60s. You were born in the early 70s. This is all we've known. We've grown up in, in the thick of post-conciliar chaos. <laughs> so, don't think that what's going on with the liturgy right now is the way it's always going to be. We still have yet to experience the renewal of the liturgy that I believe the Holy Spirit promised the church through the Second Vatican Council. Mm. And if the Holy Spirit promised it, it's going to happen. But we have to ride this wave for that renewal to come. It will come. Um, I think sometimes the, uh, well, put it this way, the, the, those who say the council itself was the problem and not the implement, implementation of the council, but the council itself. This is not, this is wrong. This is a problem. You can fall off the, ch- the, the ship 
the boat that is the church. You can fall off the left and you can fall off the right. Mm-hmm. right? And, and the renewal of the liturgy that ha- was attempted has kind of led us to fall off the left of the boat, so to speak, where we've, we've lost some of the reverence. We've lost some of the sense of what liturgy really is. In fact, Cardinal Ratzinger, in his book, Spirit of the Liturgy, which I can't recommend more highly. It's one of my favorite books of all mm-hmm. time. Uh, Spirit of the Liturgy by Joseph Ratzinger. Please read it. Please read it. He says, uh, liturgical formation is, is uh, he uses a very strong word. I wish I could remember the exact one. This might not be the exact word he uses, but it's something as strong as this. Abysmal or something like that. Mm. Liturgical formation and understanding in the post-conciliar church became something abysmal. We are in a real crisis. Mm. And I think sometimes those who who think the Novus Ordo Mass is needs to be abolished and we just need to return to the Latin rite um, or to the, what we now call the extraordinary form of the Latin rite. The Novus Ordo is the Latin rite. It's the ordinary form of the Latin rite. But those who say we need to abolish the Novus Ordo and go back to the traditional Latin Mass, I think, I think they're being impatient. They rightly want to regain that sense of awe for the mystery of liturgy, sense of reverence, but I'd say be patient. Let's, let's ride this wave together. The renewal will come, and it was promised by the Holy Spirit. It will happen. Um, in that book, Spirit of the Liturgy, Cardinal Ratzinger says that after the council, the Western church experienced its own iconoclasm. Now, what the heck does that mean? Got to go back several hundred years back into the seven and eight hundreds mm-hmm. to understand this heresy of iconoclasm. And it was a, an error in the Eastern church. This was before the split of East and West when there was one church East and West. And uh, the East has had developed in its liturgical practices, this beautiful sacred art uh, manifested in icons. I have some icons right here. I have this icon of of the resurrection. So that's a typical Eastern icon of, and those who are listening, uh, obviously you can't see that I'm holding this up, but we have Jesus coming out of the grave and pulling Adam and Eve out of the grave. The The church calls the icon a window to heaven. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing with windows to heaven. There's a temptation to stop at the window and not let the window open us up to take us beyond. And when we stop at the paint and the wood of an icon, the icon becomes an idol. So, there so, was... So, like an example might be if people for a very long time have been praying before a certain very beautiful image that they, they see that the holiness that image points to as if it's actually contained in that work of art right in front of them, that that's where the, the holiness is. Yeah, in there. And there, is, there is a certain holiness there. We call them holy images, mm-hmm. but there's a difference between letting a holy image lead you to the holy reality uh-huh. and worshiping the holy image as if it were the holy reality depicted. Mm-hmm. And when we do that, the icon degenerates into an idol. And when we're left to our own device, we're just going to flip-flop back and forth between idolatry on the one hand and then iconoclasm on the other, which is the destruction of the images, 
right? We have this imbalance in us, both to, to idolize the icon mm-hmm. and to destroy it. Right. The iconoclastic heresy was this destruction of holy images. The church intervened. Thank God we have a magisterium who has authority, who receives truth from the Holy Mm. Spirit and can say, we don't worship uh, the image, nor do we destroy the image. The, The proper response to the abuse of an image is not to abuse the image even more and destroy it, Mm. right? We should never blame the good things of God for our abuse of them. Mm -hmm. We have to look at our hearts. Why are we inclined to idolatry, right? So, So, this is what Ratzinger means when he says, after the council, the church in the West started experiencing its own iconoclastic error. Mm. We were getting rid of statues. We were getting rid of of the communion rail. We were getting, think of the architecture of churches that have been built since the Second Vatican Council. Mm -hmm. They no longer communicate what the traditional Catholic churches communicated in their architecture. Mm -hmm. And I think this is a tragic loss. I I haven't read the book. I can't vouch for the book. Haven't read it. But I found the title very provocative uh, and even entertaining. But it's a a book on church architecture since the council. And it's called Ugly as Sin. (laughs) Again, I can't vouch for it. Maybe it goes too far in its criticism. I don't know. But I think, my goodness, here's what has happened. Because we have lost an understanding of the meaning of the art and architecture of a traditional Catholic church, we've just thrown it all away. Mm. Rather than restoring, okay, what does the communion rail mean? When we have a, a, maybe we not only don't know what it means, but maybe we assigned a wrong meaning to it. Mm -hmm. And we thought it was this, the priest is super holy and the lay people are just the slobs who can't uh, enter the sanctuary. And no, 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 that's not the meaning of the communion rail. Mm -hmm. Uh, The meaning of the communion rail is that there's a veil between heaven and earth. But right at the center of the communion rail, there were those gates that opened up. That's the gateway to heaven. When we remove the communion rail, because we don't understand the communion rail, we're we're moving in the wrong direction. Rather, we should restore the meaning of the communion rail. That's just one example of the iconoclasm of the West. And, And this is why I'm saying, be patient, be patient. The renewal of the liturgy, which will in and of itself entail a renewal of Catholic art, Catholic architecture. Mm-hmm. We have yet really to see it, but it's coming. Mm. And, and remember, if we're going to think with the mind of the church, the church and Pope Benedict instituted this, and I was very glad he did. It, it just shows the, shows the largesse of the church, right. that the Latin, the traditional Latin mass is, is already available to us. It's not hidden away in some corner uh, every Catholic has a, has a right who desires that to, to, to go to that. And priests have a, a right also to say mm-hmm. the Latin Mass. So, it's still part of our heritage. It will never be not part of our heritage. Right. There's, there are things we can learn from that that we must take into the renewal. But don't throw out the baby with the bathwater uh, when you're criticizing the Novus Ordo. Uh, we have yet to see the Novus Ordo in its true proclamation in its true experience the renewal is coming b 
be patient. The Lord is faithful. You know, I love hearing you talk about this topic. I, I don't hear about it very often, and I know your reading of Pope Benedict or you know, Joseph Ratzinger has really been very helpful to your heart and your understanding. You've shared it with people. Um, and I think for our listeners, and especially the one, Wes, who asked the question, and this certainly we are welcome to benefit from the traditional Latin Mass, and the Council did not require that it the Mass not be Correct. said that way anymore. But I, I like the sort of, oh, well, what's coming yeah. kind of feeling I get when you talk about it. Like, okay, well, then this is what's familiar to me. I don't go to the traditional Latin Mass, but I wonder what's coming. And it sort of makes it exciting. So I appreciate that a lot. Thanks, love. Mm -hmm. It is exciting. We live in exciting historical mm. times. And I, I'm going to add this one little okay. nugget too. It's, well, it's not a little nugget. It's a huge nugget. And I explore this in some detail in my book, Heaven's Song, about the connection between the renewal of the liturgy and the renewal of marriage and family life. Mm. The two go hand in hand. Think about it from this perspective. The liturgical chaos of the last 50 years has corresponded in the culture and in the church with sexual chaos. John Paul is very clear on this in this theology of the body. We don't know what the liturgy is unless we understand why God made us male and female and called the two to become one flesh. The liturgy is the consummation of the mystical marriage of Christ and the church. Mm -hmm. When you take out the natural reality, the supernatural reality will also collapse, mm -hmm. at least in our understanding and practice. Mm -hmm. uh, nothing can really destroy the supernatural reality. But in our understanding and in our practice, when you take out the natural reality, what natural reality? The union of man and woman. It, when you take that out, the liturgy collapses, at least in our minds and in our hearts and in our understanding, because the liturgy, grace builds on nature. The liturgy is the graced reality of our creation as male and female. Which is, and that marriage, that graced marriage, that all marriage is graced, right? But um, supernatural. The supernatural marriage, the, the marriage of Christ and the church is consummated in the liturgy. All of this is revealed in Ephesians chapter 5, where St. Paul says the union of man and woman in one flesh is a great mystery, and it refers to Christ and the church. That's what happens in the liturgy, the marriage of Christ and the church. We got to understand marriage to understand liturgy. And it's kind of a chicken and an egg thing, which comes first. We got to understand liturgy to understand marriage. So the renewal of liturgy will not come until there's a renewal of marriage and family life, a renewal of the beautiful, glorious understanding of why God made us male and female and caused the two to be one flesh. That's a whole podcast we should do sometime, but uh, <laughs> I had to throw that in. I'm glad you did. Thanks, love. <laughs> <laughs> May I ask another question? Yes. Let's see if we can squeeze in one more. Okay. This is from a listener named Katrina. Hi, Katrina. Uh, Katrina says, I recently came across the litany of humility, and I'm wondering about how to reconcile this line from the desire of being loved, deliver me, O Jesus, with marriage. My understanding is that the love of God is sufficient However, if a marriage is a reflection 
of the marriage we'll have with God in heaven, then shouldn't we desire our spouse to love us? Also, we were created to love and be loved. So why should I pray to not Hmm. desire love when that's precisely what I'm created for? Preach it, Katrina. Preach it. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You are putting your finger, Katrina, on something I think is very, very important. Let me say this. There is a right way to understand the litany of humility and a wrong way to understand the litany of humility. And in order to understand the litany of humility in the right way, you have to have a very thorough sacramental catechesis. You have to have a real in-depth vision of what it means to be Catholic, of who God is and who we are and what his heart is and what his desire is for us and what the human being is and, and what makes us tick. And Katrina's already showing she has some good knowledge of that, right? I loved we, everything you said, I, I, Yeah, it's great. <laughs> we, are, we are made to, we are made by love for love. Right. So how are we to make sense of this line from the desire to be loved, deliver me, right? right? There's a right way to understand that, which will take us into glory, will lead to maybe some purifications we need, Mm -hmm. but will take us into glory. There is a wrong way to understand that that will take us in a direction that is utterly destructive of our humanity. And I think for the sake of time, we might need to leave this question as a a cliffhanger because I want to spend more time on this litany of humility and, and share an experience. And we'll do this in the next episode. I want to share an experience I had a few years ago on a retreat in which uh, the litany of humility came up and some of, some of my resistance to it. And obviously, we're all going to have a resistance to the litany of humility, which is called pride. <laughs> but I don't think that's what we're hearing here in no. Katrina. Uh-uh. She's saying, how can I reconcile this with what I know about what a human being is? We're made to be loved. There are a lot of lines in the litany of humility that can be really wrongly understood. Mm-hmm. And on this retreat a few years ago, I worked through that and I... And I want to share some of that in the next episode. So we're going to leave it here for now. Uh, I want to affirm where you're coming from, Katrina. We'll revisit this in the next podcast. And uh, I I know it'll be a a very fruitful conversation. Okay. For now, we want to invite listeners to uh, consider some things we have coming up. We have a Spanish version of our virtual conference coming up the weekend of June 26th and 28th. So we'll have a a link in the show notes to learn more about that. If you are Spanish-speaking yourself or you know Spanish-speaking people, please let them know about the Spanish-speaking virtual conference. Of course, we want to remind you that the virtual conference we did in English is still available for anyone out there. I've been listening to one talk per day, Mm -hmm. and I've been so blessed to hear all these people, many of them my students, uh, many of them not my students, Uh, But just so blessed to hear how people have received this teaching, integrated it into their own lives and hearts, and are able to share it so compellingly. I've been really blessed. I know if you don't already have access to our virtual conference, please click the link in the show notes to learn more about that. You will not regret it. Until our next episode, remember, as always, you are indispensable, irreplaceable, and un. Repeatable. You are that kind of gift. Become what you are.
Ask Christopher West comes to you from the Theology of the Body Institute with music by Mike Mangione and production by Sounder and Key. Christopher and Wendy hope the information presented is helpful to you, but remind you that they are not licensed counselors. If you're going through serious difficulty, you can find a list of trusted counselors and psychologists in the show notes.